it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday then around-the-clock on-demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. You can follow me personally, if you're interested, while you're at it, at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms, Twitter and Instagram. I'm political editor at TownHall.com, Fox News contributor. Here's the lineup today. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Wisconsin, he'll be here later on this hour talking about China and some other issues as well. Britt Hume, in our middle hour, senior political analyst at Fox News, looking forward to that conversation. And Byron York in studio to kick off our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. All of that still to come. Well, I saw this story today that I wanted to bring to you. It came out yesterday evening. Twitter owner Elon Musk, and yes, we're talking about it. I think a lot of this drama, as I've said before, is boring to me. The freak out of all these journalists, boring to me. But I'm starting to get concerned about how eagerly excited they are about trying to censor Twitter and punish Twitter because someone that they don't like is now in charge of it. And the types of people that they don't like, some of them are being let out of Twitter jail. I think a number of those people were never in Twitter jail for good reason. Elon Musk and company changing how things are done, new sheriff in town. And rather than adapting, you have people who view this as their sacred birthright to have Twitter be exactly what they want it to be, catering to their types of people. They are now mobilizing in a lot of cases to try to hurt the company. So this is a CNBC story. Twitter owner Elon Musk claimed on Monday in a series of tweets that Apple had threatened to remove the Twitter app from the App Store as part of its app review moderation process. Quote, Apple has also threatened to withhold Twitter from its App Store, but won't tell us why, Musk tweeted. In other tweets fired off on Monday, he called Apple's App Store fees a, quote, secret 30 percent tax and ran a poll asking if Apple should publish all censorship actions it has taken that affect its customers. So, at least according to Musk, Apple is threatening, for reasons that are either private or unclear, to remove the Twitter app from the App Store. Now, you might say this is one private company making a decision to not do business with, Another private company. Should the government be involved at all in that? I think that's an interesting discussion to have, especially among free market conservatives. But on the other hand, it looks like so much of the business world, 
big tech platforms, really all of our society has become deeply, deeply politicized. And for conservatives to just say, oh, well, it's the market at work, I think increasingly misses the boat, certainly in certain circumstances. And I'm not saying that there's like an easier, clean solution to this. I'm sort of uncomfortable with all of it. But also a unilateral disarmament when the activist left with their allies, really their henchmen, their vanguard in the news media doing their bidding are trying to use all sorts of levers of power, whether it's government when they're in control or business that they can bully into submission to try to suppress and stifle and punish viewpoints and speech that they don't like. You know, that's an active battle underway. And just sort of taking this sort of astroturf war and saying, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done. I'm not really sure that's the correct approach either. Now, what really bugged me about this, there was an exchange at the press briefing yesterday at the White House where Corinne Jean-Pierre, she didn't come out with White House talking points on this in her binder. She didn't flip to the page, you know, the T tab in her binder for Twitter and flip over to that and start reading poorly from whatever someone had prepared for her. That's not what happened. A journalist asked a question that is basically just to me, it it sounds like, it reads like a reporter begging the government to regulate and stifle speech using the specter of the danger of so-called misinformation as the justification to do so. It's weird, although we're seeing it increasingly. It's not new. It's been the last number of years now where a lot of journalists who are supposed to be the First Amendment crowd, often they're at the forefront of the speech suppression and censorship bandwagon, beseeching government officials with whom they agree, Democrats in power, they're all Democrats, to punish the bad people. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So here is Andrea Shalal, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, of Reuters. This is just a down-the-middle journalist, we're told, who asks the question of Corinne Jean-Pierre, who gives us kind of a word salad in response. They're taking this very seriously, keeping an eye on it, et cetera. But to me, it's the question that's more concerning and revealing than the answer. Cut 12. You know, there's a researcher at Stanford who says that this is a critical moment, really, in terms of um, ensuring that Twitter does not become a vector for misinformation. I mean, are you concerned about the, you know, Elon Musk says there's more and more uh, subscribers coming online. Are you concerned about that? And what tools do you have? Who is it at the White House that is really keeping track of this? This is something that we're certainly uh, keeping an eye on. And uh, look, um, we, you know, we have always been very clear um, and that uh, when it comes to social media platforms, it is their responsibility. Uh, to make sure that um, when it comes to misinformation, when we when it comes to the hate that we're seeing, uh, that they, they take action, that they continue uh, to take action. What tools do you have? Please do something on this misinformation government, begged the journalist. Oh, there's a researcher at Stanford who's concerned. Right, that was the the root of the question. Worried that Twitter might become a vector for misinformation. Guess what? 
when a bunch of free people are out there in a freewheeling conversation about a lot of things, there's going to be misinformation, disinformation, lies, and BS. It's going to happen. It's a big, messy country out there. It's a big, messy world. I am all for combating misinformation. I think the truth is important. That's what we try to do here. That being said, who gets to decide what is misinformation and what is hate? Another word that Corinne Jean-Pierre used there. Because the problem is we've seen from the hardcore left, they have a capacious definition of hate that they apply all over the place, generally to speech that they don't like. Now, some of it is genuinely hateful and vile and disgusting. And there are certain things that I think platforms should be careful about not allowing to seep out, at least on their platforms, to the general public. Right? Like, I think we can all agree, for example, child pornography. Let's all make sure that that is not something that people can get their hands on easily. It's a disgusting crime. Hate speech becomes a grayer area. Especially because a lot of people abuse the term hate, abuse the concept of hate or hate speech to try to disqualify a massive swath of the population that they just happen to disagree with. To try to effectively say you're not allowed to participate in the public square or the virtual public square because your positions on fill in the blank issue. From social issues like abortion or trans issues or gay issues even into just like fiscal issues like, oh, Republican positions are going to kill people. It's hateful and dangerous. They've abused this so often that, no, they should not be trusted to be fair minded arbiters of this stuff because they're not. They've shown they've demonstrated that they're not on misinformation. Yes, it exists. Yes, it can be very dangerous when a bunch of people are led to believe things that aren't true through a drumbeat of misinformation, that is a bad, corrosive thing. However, these very smart, erudite, self-appointed experts, perhaps this person at Stanford, perhaps this journalist and her bosses at Reuters, some of the people who put put themselves, declare themselves in charge of this stuff, they have really blown it badly on misinformation, on major prominent examples just in the last few years. My two favorite ones, because they're massive, was the Hunter Biden laptop. I'm not saying the election would have gone the other way if not for the suppression and the groupthink on the misinformation and disinformation that we saw. I don't know. It's a counterfactual that cannot be proven. Very good chance that Biden wins regardless. But if you look at how it came down to a certain number of votes in a small handful of states, is it plausible that their decision to just salute the Biden campaign's assertion that the laptop was Russian disinformation and a bunch of those retired former intelligence guys and gals just signed a big letter saying, oh, yes, all the home, all the hallmarks. This is Russian disinformation. Which then gave the excuse for the media to bury the story, for social media to throttle the story, suspend the New York Post Twitter account. We remember what happened. 
There was a damaging story about the Biden family. Whether you think it was a game changer, should be a game changer or not, it was a true story about a real thing that was censored as disinformation and misinformation, even though it wasn't right before an election. That's a big deal, guys. I know some people roll their eyes. Oh, Hunter Biden laptop. This is a weird hang up of these crazy right wingers. I'm not even that obsessed with Hunter Biden compared to some other people. What happened on that story is a disgrace. It is scary. And it goes to my concern about the referees on disinformation or misinformation. They were dead wrong intentionally and otherwise for political reasons right before our last presidential election. And then we also had the misinformation label all over the place on COVID, including on factual things people said about COVID that were not allowed to be said for any number of days or weeks or months or even years. Right? These were out of fashion inconvenient truths. Now, there was a lot of misinformation about COVID also out there from all sides. A lot of absolute nonsense, some of which I would argue was dangerous. I'm not disputing that. But there were also correct things based on the science and based on the data that a certain cabal of people decided was not okay, was not acceptable, was misinformation, and therefore you could be suspended or thrown off of Twitter and other platforms for putting it out there including where the disease came from. For a long time, it was misinformation, reckless in the extreme to talk about the lab leak theory. Senator Tom Cotton, for example, the knives were out for him. Look at this horrible person doing this horrible thing, spreading misinformation, conspiracy theories. The same smart set, the people who consider themselves our collectively, our moral betters, They all decided that there's no way that was true for whatever reason, and therefore it couldn't be said. And now it is at least plausible and viable as a theory, if not likely or probable. And then after a long period of time of suppressing stuff and throttling that information, it's like, oh, well, oops, maybe not anymore. So forgive me, forgive some of us for not trusting these people to correctly identify if that's possible, or at least in the realm of reasonableness, define what is hate and what is misinformation. And yet in that clip, you hear a journalist begging the White House to use its tools to fight this stuff, which I think is actually pretty chilling. I don't know what the best solution to this is, but I think that is revealing and disturbing. And that's why a lot of conservatives are coming around to saying, if this is what they want to do, if this is how they want to play it, it is going to be hardball politics all over the place. And the old rules are gone because they're setting the rules. It's like the DeSantis model with Disney, for example. Did I love that? No. Is he playing? Is he fighting for keeps the way that they do? Yeah. Is that a full justification? I'm not not convinced of that. But it's also a new reality. And I think Republicans or conservatives just standing in a corner and pretending like it's not happening is absurd. Speaking of DeSantis, I've got some sound I want to play of him. I got a break. Let's take it. A lot to get to on the show today. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson, and we're back. So we're talking about Twitter and Apple and some of these skirmishes that are breaking out, this brouhaha that is either brewing or already underway. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida weighing in on this earlier. Cut 13. Listen here. There's reports that Apple is not allowing the protesters to use this airdrop function where they're trying to communicate. That obviously is providing aid and comfort to the CCP. And so you see that report, and that's very concerning. And then when you also hear reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store because Elon Musk is actually opening it up for free speech and is restoring a lot of accounts that were uh, unfairly and illegitimately suspended for putting out accurate information about COVID. That's like one of the main things that's being reinstated. So many things these experts were wrong at, and you had people on Twitter that were calling that out. And Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And and, and Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula, and so he's uh, providing free speech. He's drawing a juxtaposition here with Apple's conduct. He goes on and cut 14. So if Apple responds to that uh, by nuking them from from the App Store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake. And it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from from the United States Congress. And so uh, don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. And so I'm glad I'm glad things are changing at Twitter. And I know there's a lot of work to do with big tech generally, but um, uh, but this is big progress. And we're really happy that that is now happening. I think serious questions need to be asked of Apple and some of these other tech companies about what they're doing in China, what their relationship is with the Chinese government. How much are they helping the CCP in some of their crackdown efforts directly or indirectly? And then what exactly is Apple up to with these threats, these alleged threats against Elon Musk and Twitter, for example. This might be fertile ground, I don't know, for hearings in a new Republican House of Representatives, for instance, just to come up with one idea. I would say get the most tech-savvy, smartest members to ask specific questions. No grandstanding. Be specific. This is an area that I think very much deserves a lot more intense inquiry. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. Thanks for being here. With us now is Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th Congressional District in the Badger State. Congressman, welcome back to the show. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Great to be back. I would like to start with you on China. I know you've been all over the place talking about it. I saw you on the news channel yesterday, I think again today, talking about the protests that we're seeing over there, although it looks like the government is really starting to crack down, but also loosen some of the restrictions on COVID that are just nuts that have drawn some of these protests, people getting locked inside their apartments and then burned to death in fires, just horrible stuff happening. What's your view on what's going on over there in China and what should and should not the United United States government be doing? Well, first of all, it's hard to get a, a really accurate sense of the scale. I mean, based on some informal reporting I saw, Two days ago in Tiananmen Square, there were about 100 people, and then a day later, there were 200,000. So there does seem to be something unique in terms of the size happening here, something we haven't seen since 1989 in Tiananmen Square. Um, But it's a a, a fluid situation, and I'm I'm sort of awaiting a variety of briefings now that we're back here in session. Um, The Tiananmen Square comparison, I, I think, is interesting in a few ways. One is because Xi Jinping, the current general secretary of the Communist Party, has repeatedly and recently applauded his predecessor, Deng Xiaoping's violent suppression of the 1989 Tiananmen demonstrations. But one of the big differences between then and now is that Xi Jinping actually has many more tools at his disposal. Uh, you know, the previous regime, you know, or a couple of regimes earlier, had to rely on brute force. Well, Xi Jinping has a variety of technological tools at his disposal in order to suppress the protesters. Something I'd mentioned on TV earlier today, I don't think most people understand, uh, and, and it's kind of they've been able to turbocharge in COVID, is your average Chinese citizen needs to show a COVID clearance code to get access to certain grocery stores, public transportation, you know, public restrooms. So imagine a, a CCP it's official so just arbitrarily switching that from green to red just because they don't like that person or don't like the fact that uh, they were protesting. It, it's I've described it as Orwell on steroids. Yeah, it's it's extremely creepy. It's dystopian, and it's the reality that's playing out over there. It's interesting to watch the response of the Biden administration. I called it tepid at best. Some of the statements that they've put out. Now, I understand, Congressman, and I'm very eager to get your thoughts on this. On one hand, I think it's important for the United States to speak out clearly and forcefully on behalf of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, democracy, basic God-given liberties are fundamental core values, right? I think that that is something that is appropriate for the United States to do, for a president to use that huge megaphone or bullhorn, whatever you want to call it, on the global stage to speak out on behalf of freedom and human rights. I think that that is always the right decision. The other side of this is sort of the more calculated real politics side, where, number one, you've got an adversary in China that you still need to work with on a lot of different fronts. So do you pull some punches? And kind of related to that, do you want to give some of these regimes propaganda 
victories or at least a foothold of propaganda to say that whatever's happening organically inside their country with their populations rising up and and making their voices heard, whether it's in Russia or Iran or China, if the U.S. government can even be somewhat plausibly painted as pulling the strings, can that be used to discredit the organic movements in those countries? There's sometimes a balancing act in terms of what the U.S. should say, should do, and on the other hand, should not. What do you think the appropriate mix is here, and is the Biden administration achieving that mix yet? I'll take the second part of the question first. Um, I, I think if we say nothing and do nothing, we will still be blamed by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so we might as well do the right thing, right? Um, yeah. uh, they're already going to make the argument that this is all a result of the CIA meddling and stirring up another color revolution. You know, that's sort of the common Yeah, the liars lie, right? Russia. The liars are going to exactly. lie no matter what. Exactly. So uh, we might as well be on on the right side of freedom here. And then to the kind of the bigger question, I, I understand you know, prudence is a healthy impulse in matters of geopolitics. And there are times when we have to make very terrible trades between, let's say, our values and our more immediate security concerns. But this, I don't think, is is one of them. Right. You know, those making the case for a cooperative relationship with China usually cite a few things where interests overlap. Stability on the Korean Peninsula, you know, nonproliferation, um, and climate change. Well, if you go down that list, the Chinese Communist Party is actually not a helpful uh, partner in, in any of them. They're, they're one of the most abysmal, uh, you know, uh, global actors in all three cases. And so, you know, and then to connect it to your overall point about the Biden administration, I think you're seeing that type of response. I think you're seeing a a schizophrenic or confused response on China because. They haven't really decided. You know, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want to cooperate while competing. Uh, it's my view that we have to just recognize the CCP for what it is, uh, and that's not a, a an entity that that can be trusted. They violated every major international agreement they've made. It's not an entity that cares about uh, climate change, and to the extent they care about stability on the Korean Peninsula, it's only to prevent you know South, it looking more like South Korea than North Korea and threatening their immediate territory. So I, I just think this is a moment where we don't have to make the choice between our values and our immediate security interests. Congressman, in the last segment, I played a few sound bites of Governor Ron DeSantis, who was weighing in earlier on Apple and allegations, at least against Apple, that their products are being used, I guess, with their consent or at least with using their products to crack down on some of these protests by the government, and perhaps Apple is willing to make certain concessions to the CCP to have access to a huge market to make a lot of money and you know go into that market and flood the zone and, and get rich, but is that being used against protesters in a way that violates their human rights? There are questions swirling around Apple there. And then on the other hand, here at home, Elon Musk is alleging that Apple is threatening to pull the Twitter app off of the App Store. And that, of course, would have fairly significant impact on Twitter's business, Twitter's ability to draw traffic and engagement and all of that stuff. And the allegation from Musk is there are some like vague demands and threats being made of what Apple believes Twitter needs to do in order to maintain their position uh, in the app store, like a sort of an app in good standing. And what Governor DeSantis said was, you know, Apple 
needs to not be playing both sides of the free speech issue here where they're kind of in some ways aiding and abetting allegedly the CCP while also flexing muscles against free speech, at least arguably here in the United States. And he said that if Apple were to move forward with some of these threats and and move forward with the action that they're talking about, it would be a reasonable area of inquiry for the U.S. Congress to start getting involved. I just wonder, as a guy like me who's a free market capitalist type of person, I get uncomfortable with the idea of the government inserting itself into you know businesses choosing whether or not to do business with one another. But it also feels like the whole thing has gotten so politicized and weaponized that just walking away and dis- disarming from the whole battle here is also a mistake. How do you think through some of these things? Well, I think, uh, well, right now, we, all we have is reports that Apple, for example, has reduced their airdrop functionality in China. I haven't been able to confirm that. I, I look forward to Apple being forthcoming about whether that's true. And, and I do think it should go without saying that any American technology company that is really siding with the CCP by aiding the regime against the protesters will have to answer to Congress, uh, have to answer hard questions about why it is prioritizing profits over the human rights of the Chinese people. But Apple is perhaps just the biggest example of the predicament that a lot of companies have gotten themselves into for understandable reasons, right? These companies want to make money. I have nothing uh, against that. But I'm not sure there's another company that has more to lose than Apple when it comes to what the Chinese Communist Party uh, is doing. Uh, and so they're in a position where they're effectively uh, being held ho- held hostage uh, by the regime. As for, you know, this spat with Twitter, you know, I just uh, I just would ask they apply the same uh, uh, approach to, to TikTok, where, I mean, my gosh, TikTok's owned by ByteDance, which is effectively controlled by the CCP. I haven't heard Apple expressing any concerns about that. We should all be concerned that TikTok is on the verge of becoming the most powerful media company uh, in America. So, you know, yeah, that's why it's so reason- that's why it feels like so political to me. Oh, Elon Musk is pissing off all these people on the left and journalists and folks who have the ear of major corporations who are concerned about sort of these woke mobs getting mad at them. And so it's sort of this cause celeb on the left right now in America to hate Twitter and be mad at Elon Musk and all of that. So a company like Apple is rushing into that fray. And to your point, apparently not concerned at all about this massive CCP espionage tool that is the most popular app, you know, in the world right now. And of course, you can get it through Apple as well, because, you know, it it behooves them. It just it feels like the whole thing comes down to politics, not principle at all, which is why it's frustrating to try to, like, apply a principled approach to a giant fight that feels principle free. Totally uh, get that. And I think um, one of the things that would be helpful, actually, and that I think is within Elon Musk's actual power to do, there's a contradiction we've seen where your average Chinese citizen obviously does not have access to Twitter. The regime doesn't allow it to happen. They only uh, allow apps that they can control. But their diplomats, their so-called wolf warrior diplomats, their propagandists, are all over Twitter, YouTube, all of our social media companies basically spreading lies about the United States. So as a matter of reciprocity, and I do think this is principle, uh, we should not allow access to uh, for those diplomats and those propagandists that they deny to their own citizens. And that's something right. that's entirely within 
uh, Elon Musk power to do. I actually wrote to Jack Dorsey a few years ago suggesting that in the midst of the pandemic, when we saw a lot of this crazy propaganda, uh, he did not. Re- well, he had a, he had an underling reply with 15 pages worth of, of jargony nonsense. But there are things we can do to level the information uh, playing field and to kind of start to undermine the great firewall that China has built. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin is my guest, a Republican congressman. Last topic here. You and I had, I think, a very good, civil, respectful, constructive conversation on the air months ago. You had voted against a previous version of the Respect for Marriage Act. Forty-seven, I believe, House Republicans had voted yes. It's effectively codifying same-sex marriage. It's a little bit more technically complicated than that. I think it's redundant. Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision, isn't going anywhere for reasons that I've talked about many times. But this is seen as a legislative backstop. I was supportive of the House bill. I thought it could be improved. It's gone to the Senate. You voted against it in the House. Now in the Senate, they have, in my mind, improved it. I would still support additional improvements, like Senator Lee's amendment, for example. I would be all for that. But I don't think that's a make or break for me because ultimately some of these religious liberty questions – will be decided by the courts, and I think the Supreme Court should decisively settle them on you know, the bakers and the florists and that kind of stuff. Um, so I understand some of the concerns. There's a thoughtful National Review editorial about this, that it's still not strong enough on religious liberty. I still think it's better than it was when you voted against it, the, the version that's in the Senate. It's cleared multiple hurdles in the Senate. It's expected to be passed on a bipartisan basis, unclear how many Republicans will cross the aisle, but could be maybe 10, 12 or more. If that bill, as expected, comes back and pings back to the House, since it's a new version of it, and you guys vote on it this time around, are you more open to supporting this version? I am. I I think it's much improved. Now, listen, I want to understand Mike Lee's argument. There are so-called RIFRA provisions in the new bill that didn't exist in the previous Bill, he's arguing that those aren't strong enough. So, you know, I look forward to that discussion that I think I'm going to have later today. Uh, but it did fix the inconsistency and the reciprocity provisions, the so-called polygamy loophole that we talked about before. Yep. So that's a good step forward, um, as well as, you know, part of the objection at the time was just the process was non-existent, right? I think it was a fly-in day. There was a few hours of, of pseudo-debate on the floor you know, there were questions about uh, the bill. Well, now we've had a few months to kind of kick this around, really uh, understand it. You know, the Senate has tried to do a bipartisan uh, back and forth on it. And even though we both agree that it's a near zero probability that Oberto goes away, that shouldn't be an excuse for the legislative branch not doing its job. In other words, we can't just rely on, you know, the court to do a job that we should do through clear legislation so we can have a fix for the very unlikely scenario that Obergefell goes away. And the fix ultimately is allowing the states to retain their privacy on issues of marriage with sensible reciprocity provisions between the states. Right, to allow some security and stability for couples who are married elsewhere to make sure that they still have those rights and that sort of thing. I think it makes sense. I know that your biggest objections that you just mentioned, that one sort of loophole and where they had inconsistent phrasing, that's been fixed. The process now is playing out in a, in a better, more drawn out, more fulsome and substantive way. I also think they've gone through on religious liberty and injected some good language. It might not be fully sufficient in every way, shape or form, but it's better than it was, which is basically non-existent before. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm hopeful that 
all the Republicans who voted for the first version in the House will vote again for it. And then maybe some more folks like you will be getting on board as well. And I know that uh, that's something you and I can maybe talk about offline as well. It looks like you'll have at least a little bit of time to think it through. But those Senate votes happening soon. So I wanted to ask you about it since you and I had discussed it previously. With that, we're up on a break. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Wisconsin 8, a Republican. Really appreciate it, sir. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Appreciate it, guy. Stepping aside, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So there's this politically charged soccer game happening right now with Team USA and Iran in the World Cup. And it is one to nothing USA right now, very late in the game. Iran almost just tied it. They're in extra time. So there's like six or seven minutes left in extra time. And if USA can hang on to this one nothing lead, they'll advance to the next round, the knockout round, along with England, who they tied 0-0 a few days ago. We talked about that. Those would be the two teams from the group of four moving forward. I'm learning things about soccer. All right, I'm rooting for America, obviously, in this game. But, I mean, one nothing. I guess USA scored midway through the first half and then nothing since then. They netted another goal right before halftime, but it was waved off barely because I guess someone's, like, appendage was slightly offside. So the goal didn't count. It would be 2 nothing. Instead, it's one nothing, with only a little bit of time left. So another scintillating soccer game where it's, I guess, we're approaching... Five and a half hours of play in the World Cup so far for the U.S., and they have scored a total of two goals in all of that. A 1-1 tie, a 0-0 tie, and hopefully a win of 1-0 or more here with time running out for Team Iran. I did see that one of the Iranian state media propagandists at a press conference went after the USA Team captain Tyler Adams, like, isn't America racist and all this stuff? And he handled it very respectfully and maturely and beautifully. Kind of put the guy in his place without being mean about it. Well done to him. And good luck to Team USA. They got to hang on for just a few more minutes for this very, very exciting blockbuster one nothing score. All right, USA and all that. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. From the Tony Snow Studios in Washington, D.C., I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. Fox News alert as we get going in this hour. The Dow closes up two points, so basically flat, ending the day at 33,852. And another Fox News alert on the Fox Broadcast Network. Minutes ago, Team USA closed out a scintillating 1 nothing victory, where I guess they were just playing the soccer equivalent of prevent defense not very well. With Iran, with multiple chances to score, USA was looking like they weren't really interested in scoring, which they haven't been all all tournament. They scored a total of two goals in five and a half hours of soccer, but they won. 
which is what I guess is important. Good guys win one nothing over Iran, and Team USA advances to the next round. They will play the Netherlands on Saturday, and I think it's like a winner-go-home situation now, the knockout round. That would make sense, but very few things about soccer make sense to me, so I'll have to double-check and fact-check myself on that. But congratulations to Team USA on their victory and their advancement here with all that exciting lack of scoring happening on the Fox Broadcast Network. Sorry, I'm just not a soccer guy if you haven't pictured that or figured it out. I am wearing my USA hat, though, with the flag on it today in solidarity with the team. They work hard, and, of course, I've been rooting for them. So uh, victory in hand for the U.S. With that, let's get to another winner, our friend Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Guy. Glad to be on with you. Did you catch any of that exciting soccer action? I did. Action? I, caught the, I caught the concluding minutes of it, and uh, the USA was certainly playing good defense. Uh, the poor Ryans, they really never had any kind of shots on goal at the end of that game. Um, they never really came close to tying it that I could see, at least in the closing minutes. And uh, it's just no, an important win. You know, I was rooting for the U.S. as you were, obviously, um, hoping they would win. But you got to feel for those Iranian players. Heaven knows what they're going to go back to when they get back to Iran. First of all, you know, they refrained from singing the national anthem, which was an act of, I thought, extraordinary courage on their part. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and, and you know, this time around they did sing it, though without much gusto, I didn't think. Um, but who knows what fate awaits them when they get back to that brutal regime. And their families reportedly were threatened because they hadn't exactly sung right. the anthem the first time, and that got some attention. So these thugs that run the country said, basically, you better not do anything like that again because we know where your families live. Uh, what what a terrible way to have to compete in a game like this and you know, rooting very hard for the people of Iran, most of whom want no part of this regime, uh, but very glad to see the regime's team ultimately lose and more importantly, Team USA winning and advancing. And I know some of my friends are so into soccer. My brother's into this, watching every minute, hanging on it. I wish I could enjoy it more. I just overall find the sport too uneventful to be that exciting. But that's just me, and I'll as long as USA's in it, I'll keep watching, I'll keep rooting. Britt, I want to get your take on a few political topics. President Biden meeting, as he said he would, with the big four, the Republican and Democratic leaders. This is their first confab of that sort since the election, sort of an interesting election where Republicans have won the House. They have not regained the Senate, kind of a status quo election, better outcome for the Democrats than they, uh, than I think that they were anticipating overall, but still uh, a changing of the gavel and control of that gavel in the lower chamber, at least, upcoming Uh, They all came out and gave their talking points and that sort of thing. Of course, the Democratic leadership on the House side is going to be changing in the new Congress. I'm not anticipating very much happening for the next two years with divided government. That's kind of the point. Also, I think the Republican majority is going to be very dysfunctional in terms of being able to do anything just on their own. Uh, Do you think that's about right from your perspective? Yeah, I do, Guy. I think it is about right. The Democratic agenda will be frozen because it'll be extremely difficult for the Democrats to push anything of any moment through the House of Representatives, um, assuming that the the House Republicans can get their act together and actually elect a speaker. Um, <laughs> it appears that Kevin McCarthy, who's the would-be speaker, doesn't yet have the votes, and heaven knows what concessions he'll have to make in order to get the, the remaining votes he needs. 
But uh, it's just going to be hard for the Democrats to move anything, and hard for the Republicans to move anything either, because they won't be able to get it through the, through the Democratic-controlled Senate, and they certainly won't be able to get anything important passed over a presidential veto or with a presidential veto looming. So that's kind of where we are, and you know, I think that's the, that, that gridlock is likely to be welcomed by a great many people who've had enough of the legislative agenda that they've seen from the Democrats these past two years under Mr. Biden, who promised to be a moderate but has not. Yep, I think that's exactly right. One topic that's kind of looming over the economy right now, you and I both addressed this on special report last night with Brett Bayer, is this potential rail strike that could be really impactful and have a real cause real problems for the U.S. economy should it go forward. There was the specter of this potentially happening before the election, and they uh, avoided a strike then. My cynical take was there's no way the union bosses were going to do that to the Democrats right before an election. So they held off. Now it seems like there's an impasse. The president who billed himself as this blue-collar union guy seems to have thrown up his hands. He's not getting heavily involved. He wants Congress to take over the process here. Is this a real threat? What do you make of Biden's leadership or lack thereof? What's happening here? Well, he's thrown up his hands, I guess, in a way. He, you know, he, he, was, he wanted everybody to know that that he and his team had put this this agreement together, this tentative agreement together that averted a strike earlier. Uh, he wanted you know, everybody to think that that was a triumph, and of course now it's come apart because a number of the unions won't sign on to it. So he's basically handed it over to Congress, which can legislate the can legislatively impose that agreement. Um, that looks like it'll go through the House. Uh, because the Democrats have the votes and the discipline to do it, and a lot of Republicans will go along with it, I assume. Labor doesn't like it. And when it gets to the Senate, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think there's a good chance it'll pass. At the, you know, if all else fails, uh, the president could uh, dust off the old Taft-Hartley Act and go to the court and seek an 80-day cooling-off period to avert uh, a looming strike, which would get us past the holidays, perhaps, uh, and maybe even into the new year, So, and, and well into the new year, come to think of it. So we'll see if that happens. We haven't done that. We haven't seen that in a long time. It was the Bush administration the last time that was done. Meanwhile, we are one week away from the runoff election in the U.S. Senate down in Georgia with a potential 51st vote for the Senate Democrats or a 50th vote for the Republicans, depending on who wins. Uh, Control will remain in Democrat hands, as I mentioned a moment ago. Polling, I don't know how useful it is, but showing this thing extremely close From what I see, the turnout, at least so far in the early going, has been beneficial to the Democrats. I don't really know how the outcome from three weeks ago impacts enthusiasm on that front. But what's your general read on Georgia? And do you find it interesting that apparently the former president, Donald Trump, who recruited Herschel Walker to get into the race, will not be campaigning for Walker over this last week? Well, I think it's the odds tend to favor the Democrats because – you know, the reason for Herschel Walker, chosen and endorsed by Mr. Trump, about whom many Republicans had doubts and were not terribly enthusiastic, was that he could have been, you know, the 51st vote to give the Republicans control. Well, now that's out the window. So I think the incentive to, to get out and, and vote for, for uh, Herschel Walker is diminished. Um, and the Democrats would like nothing better than to have a 51st vote. Um, but I don't think it's going to matter as much as it might have. Uh, that very well could be the case. And I've made at least a few points 
cutting against what you're arguing, which I don't think is wrong, but just saying there are some things at stake. There's a difference between 51 and 50 in the next Congress and then setting things up for 2024. I think it matters a lot. I hope Georgians listening to us right now, especially down in Atlanta, 106.3 Extra, get out there and vote. Early voting is underway. The election day for the runoff is one week from today. Big Senate race down there in Georgia, although with lower stakes than it could have been for reasons that Britt just mentioned. Britt Hume on The Guy Benson Show. Britt, appreciate it. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So I thought this was really interesting. You might recall a month, maybe a little more than a month ago, I had drawn to your attention an analysis, quote-unquote, written in the Washington Post and amplified on social media by one of their reporters over at the Post, a guy called Philip Bump, who I think is widely understood to be a Democratic operative and functionary in terms of the type of commentary and analysis that he provides as a quote-unquote journalist over at the Washington Post. And his thesis leading up to the midterm elections was that the whole crime surge, the crime crisis, widespread voter concerns about crime, were not really justified by actual reality or data, but it was something that Fox News was hyping up. So we had sort of created this here at Fox. And I pushed back at the time against that. In fact, I went through and screenshotted story after story after story after story, not about specific crimes that occurred in a number of cities across the country, but crime statistic headlines from across the country in major cities all across America with profound increases in crime all over the place. These are not things that Fox News invented. These are things that voters understood to be real because they saw them in their communities, saw them on their late local news or the morning news in their own towns and cities and areas. And it was a particularly resonant issue in New York where the gubernatorial race was mid-single digits and Republicans flipped net four House seats, largely responsible just in New York for the Republican majority in the House. And by the way, Republicans had a big polling lead all across the country on the issue of crime. They didn't parlay that and exploit that into a big sweeping red wave for a number of reasons. I think the general perception of the Republican Party, particularly a certain element of the Republican Party, is still concerning and off-putting enough to swing and independent voters that Democrats ended up having not an awful night. They still lost the House, of course. But Republicans have a big edge on crime because people understand that crime is being fueled. Criminals are being indulged by these soft left-wing so-called progressive policies. So Philip Bump said that this was not really a thing and it was being hyped by Fox. His headline was crime is surging, parentheses, in Fox News coverage. And he said that the data was sketchy and may not suggest that crime was up significantly since last year. I, of course, would argue that the baseline should be pre-pandemic 2019. Things got really bad and they've gotten worse and they haven't recovered. That is the meaningful comparison. But he was trying to play some of these games and I would argue gaslight people 
for political reasons to try to push back against a pretty potent line of political criticism against his party, the Democratic Party, for whom he is effectively a spokesman. Now, why am I calling back to that Philip Bump piece from weeks ago? Well, because today in The Washington Post, if you go to their website, it's behind a paywall, but there is an interactive piece that is just heart-wrenching, profiling nine loved ones who have lost people to murder recently in the United States, all across the country. Little kids, teenagers, adults, people killed not in mass shootings, but in individual, isolated incidents of homicide. And these people, you just grieve for them. It is so difficult to read some of this. Their pain, their anguish comes through. They're trying to put the pieces of their lives back together after their lives have been shattered by violence and in these cases, homicide. And the Washington Post, in this piece, in this interactive feature, refers to murder as a crisis in America, describing, quote, surging nationwide homicide rates, constituting, quote, a deadly spike that has reached, quote, the highest levels in decades. That is how the Washington Post is framing it. And I just wonder if this particular reporter of theirs reads his own newspaper. Does he acknowledge that this is a real phenomenon? Does he still believe this is a Fox News-fueled, phony story, ginned up for fear-mongering reasons and political gain? Or is it now okay to acknowledge now that the elections are over? Because I just quoted the Washington Post story's own words back to you. I would also point out, as I did briefly yesterday, the Washington Post is located in Washington, D.C., as the name suggests, where since 2019, carjackings have tripled. For one example, just to pull that out of thin air, and by thin air I mean we talked about it yesterday, the city council has reacted to the tripling of carjackings by trying to reduce and voting unanimously to reduce criminal penalties for that violent crime. It's amazing. And as of midsummer in 2022, we are on track in Washington, D.C. this year to have a sixth consecutive year of increased murder rates, which were already elevated in D.C. This would be six straight years of increases in the murder rate in Washington, D.C. Does Philip Bump live around here? I don't know. He does work. At the Washington Post, technically as a journalist. And I know that one of the talking points that we've heard from left wing groups and from governors, for example, like Kathy Hochul, who barely clung on in New York and Gavin Newsom, especially out in California, desperate to be president, is that really the crime problem is a red state problem. We've addressed this as well. I will just remind you that based on an analysis from the Heritage Foundation, quote, a large portion of murders occurred in these red states' biggest cities or counties that were primarily run by Democrats. In fact, nationwide, quote, of the top 30 cities with the highest murder rates, 27 have Democratic mayors. Within those 30 cities, there are at least 14 prosecutors backed or inspired by radical leftist billionaire George Soros, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal recently that he's very proud of his soft-on-crime progressive prosecutors 
who he has financed in their campaigns. So even if some of these murder problems are happening in red states, a lot of it is emanating from blue cities run by Democrats. And it's funny how some of these people want to cherry pick and say, oh, well, we're not going to blame the local Democratic leadership for the crime problem or the local district attorneys, Democrats, for the problem and the mayors. We're not going to blame the Democratic president and administration for the problems, but let's find a way to blame it on the middle level if they happen to be Republican governors. That's the ticket. It's just so dishonest. And I've seen some lefties on social media and elsewhere saying, oh, now that the election's over, Fox News isn't going to care about crime anymore. They're covering it less. We are not going to look away from the issue because it remains real. And if you need any evidence of it, just go read the piece today. Heartbreakingly, it is tough to read in the Washington Post, home of the journalist who told us this was all a big figment of the Fox News fever dream, or at least vastly exaggerated. No, it's real. And we're going to keep talking about it here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the midway point here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast. Yesterday we did a shorter segment on this general topic. We promised more because we didn't have quite enough time. So we will now bring you more of Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Yesterday, we were talking about Washington, D.C. and some of the nuttiness here. Let's now hopscotch across the country to the other coast and the San Francisco Bay Area, of course. Specifically, San Francisco itself. This story is remarkable, I guess, but I can't really call it terribly surprising. But it does, I think, underscore the absolute toxicity of identity politics, identity fixation, and reducing people down to their immutable characteristics, where other things like character, job performance become secondary or tertiary because what this cult really is all about is skin color, sex, sexuality, gender identity, all this other stuff. So the bottom line of this first example that I'm going to bring to your attention, is that the gentleman who is in charge of facilitating and administrating San Francisco's city elections is not having his contract renewed to continue in that position. He was hired about two decades ago. San Francisco's elections were famously a mess, just a disheveled, dysfunctional basket case in that city. And they had just cycled through a bunch of election directors over the course of just a few years. I believe they had five different directors in four or five years. And they would just shuffle through, fail, and then leave or get forced out. Then a man named John Arntz was put in the position. He was hired in 2002. And in short order, 
he was able to turn San Francisco, San Francisco County, into what many people have described now as a model of professionalism and success. Now, just one little caveat here. You're still talking about San Francisco. We're still talking about the state of California and some of their overall systems that I think are crazy, like legal ballot harvesting and all this other stuff that they do out there, the counting that takes forever. In fact, we are three weeks removed from the November elections, and there's still an uncalled race in the House out there. California 13 is still uncalled today. So it's still California and their completely broken system. I just had to point that out. But working within those rules, working within that framework, this guy, John Arntz, was able to right the ship and bring this thing on track and get the job done. And he has now been in that position for two decades because he's good at it. And then came the very big surprise to a lot of people in San Francisco that he is being shown the door. He is out. That will no longer be his position. Here's a story from a local outlet reading now. Elections director John Arntz, who oversees one of the few San Francisco departments that unambiguously accomplishes its core mission, has not been renewed for his post by the city's elections commission. By a vote of four to two, after a lengthy Wednesday closed session meeting, the commission opted to not re-up Arntz for the position he has held since 2002. The position will come open in May 2023. Then they go through and they talk about how this guy has received commendation after commendation for his success, for his professionalism, for his competence. For example, in 2021, just last year, the Elections Commission wrote to the mayor that, quote, San Francisco runs one of the best elections in the country, and we believe this transparent process has allowed us to continue to improve our elections. In 2020, the commission wrote Arntz a commendation, quote, for his incredible leadership. The department successfully ran two elections this year while facing significant challenges, talking about the pandemic, etc. He did such a great job that they put it in writing again about how good he is. And now he's going to be out of a job because this same commission voted four to two to throw him out. The story continues. The reaction across the city's political spectrum has been one of disbelief and anger. Quote, I think some folks have forgotten the history of this department, said city attorney David Chu. Before Arntz, we had five directors in as many years, ballot boxes floating in the bay, and an intense lack of confidence in city elections. Many of us are mystified, end quote. Supervisor Aaron Peskin added, quote, This is commission malfeasance. It almost becomes a justification for Mayor Breed to have letters of resignation from people who go do things that are completely insane, end quote. Mayor Breed did not go there, but did say the Elections Commission's move was ill-advised. So from left to less left in San Francisco, they all respected this man because his work spoke for itself. He took a giant jumbled dumpster fire and brought some order to it and has maintained that order successfully up and down through different systems with the changing tides for 20 years. Now, you might be wondering, why is this a woke tale story? Why are you building up this particular little anecdote? 
Well, because later on in the story you learn that the commissioners who voted to throw the guy out of his position openly admit that his dismissal, his lack of getting a new contract, has nothing to do with his job performance. Has nothing to do with his job performance at all. They all concede he has had excellent job performance. In fact, quoting from the story, elections commissioner Cynthia Dye, who voted to not renew Arntz's contract, said there was no performance-based reason for the commission's decision. She did not dispute that San Francisco has run free, fair, and functional elections for 20 years. Rather, she says, it was time to open up this position to a more diverse field. The city, she said, could not make progress on its racial equity goals without opening up its top positions. And there it is. This guy has the wrong skin color and the wrong genitalia. And just because he has put San Francisco's election systems, their local system, on track and executed the job with excellence and integrity and competence for 20 years, earning plaudits along the way from these very people, they have decided that that job should no longer be his because he's a white dude. That's it. They're not pretending otherwise. They're not concocting some other excuse, which part of me actually admires. They're just outright saying this is racial discrimination and sex discrimination that they are eagerly, happily engaging in. Because that's what equity is. It's not about equality. It's not about valuing individuals. It's not about valuing people's performance or their integrity or their character. It is about affirmative discrimination where they say there are past wrongs that must be righted and therefore in the name of equity we are going to discriminate against people it's good discrimination is what they think this is what the woke crowd believes that's what equity is and here they are admitting it he's done a great job congratulations pat on the back nice firm handshake but adios we have equity goals after all And you can't fulfill the equity goals without throwing some people out of the top levels of government and replacing them with people with different skin color and genitalia, even if they are manifestly less qualified to do the job. That doesn't matter. That's like an afterthought. It's about box checking and bean counting in this reductive, super racial, I would say, utterly poisonous way. And this, I think, goes to the dark heart of wokeism. Now, I will leave it to some of you out there in this audience who are legal experts, legal eagles, to perhaps explain to me whether this is legal at all. I didn't realize that there were loopholes in anti-discrimination laws where you actually are allowed to or even encouraged to discriminate against people on the basis of sex and race, for example, but only certain people and not others. This strikes me as not only immoral and unethical and counterproductive and wrong, fundamentally, but also unlawful. And my hope is that if this gentleman has the wherewithal to pursue a legal recourse here through a lawsuit or something like that, I hope he pursues it aggressively. Because as I've said before, as someone who is not particularly litigious, and I don't think that that's a healthy thing overall, sometimes the 
only way you can fight back successfully against this garbage is by making the people responsible for the garbage pay dearly financially. Hurt them in the pocketbook. Hit them right there. Now, I'm not sure how strong of a case he has, but just at first blush, as an outsider and a non-lawyer, just layperson, seems pretty cut and dried to me. Meanwhile, let's continue in the city of San Francisco, because why not? Here's a story from the Washington Examiner. Quote, anyone who has any remaining doubt about the final descent of San Francisco into leftist chaos should look no further than its new GIFT program, G-I-F-T, Guaranteed Income for Transgender People. In other words, taxpayers are giving transgender people in San Francisco $1,200 a month under this program. And it's just an unrestricted monthly guaranteed income. It's being billed as a way to combat poverty among certain impacted community members. And they basically created a lottery where transgender and non-binary people, and there's a whole long list of stuff I've never even heard of that qualifies under this umbrella. These terms, it's just like wild out there. And if you fit one of those boxes or identify as one of those things, you're eligible to win this lottery and be one of 55 transgender plus residents of San Francisco County, not citizens, by the way. Of course, this is open to illegal immigrants as well. And you would get, if you win this lottery, 1200 bucks a month in guaranteed income for a year and a half. And in case you were curious, quote, identity politics apply to transgender people with gift this program, prioritizing those who are black, indigenous, people of color, as well as monolingual Spanish speakers or those who are undocumented and those who are formerly incarcerated. So if you are a transgender or non-binary or whatever the appropriate categories allow, if you are within that bucket of folks and you are a person of color with some indigenous blood who is also an illegal immigrant and is an ex-felon, you are most likely to win the lottery because they sort of boost up your grievance points in the likelihood of becoming one of the 55 lucky transgender people who taxpayers will just be handing $1,200 a month to do nothing. It really reads like a parody of what you would see coming out of the San Francisco Bay Area, but this is... What they do, this is who they are out there. I saw last year, I think it was, nearby in Marin County, which is just over the Golden Gate Bridge, they were doing something similar with this universal basic income financed by taxpayers, and they were saying you can only qualify for it if you are a mother of color. Now, I'm just not sure how they define mother. What is a woman after all? So I think you start getting into some of these crazy woke weeds where they can have fights with each other about what counts, like what words even mean anymore. But if you're just a a hardworking or indigent person down on his or her luck and you are a man or you have not given birth and you're not a mother or you are white, you need not apply. This only goes to a certain group of people with certain characteristics. Which, again, just strikes me as straight-up discrimination, which is what equity requires at its extreme. And, boy, are they dabbling in that extreme out there 
in the San Francisco area. And part of me is like getting worked up about it. On the other hand, if you live out there, this is what you sign up for. If this sounds great to you, move to San Francisco. You'll love it there. If you don't want your hard-earned money going to this sort of thing, then you can go many other places, Texas or Florida. There's many fabulous places to go. And guess what? A lot of people are going because there are certain jurisdictions that seem determined to drive people away as they celebrate their pristine, exquisite equity by embracing racial and sex discrimination for progress, of course. Incredible. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Byron, you're coming up in our next hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. I am Guy Benson. So I mentioned this yesterday. I just snuck in an offhanded remark when we were talking to Congressman Tony Gonzalez from Texas. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't just glide past it in the context of the border crisis because I think this story merits its own attention and scrutiny. We were talking about how many of the frontline agents that have been demoralized, in some cases vilified, scapegoated, smeared from the president on down. A lot of them have been taken off the front lines of actually protecting the border, which is their job, trying to enforce the law, and they've been pulled into this administrative role, pencil pushers, doing paperwork for these bogus, in many cases, asylum seekers who've been trained and coached to use certain buzzwords to try to get into the country and then get a court date far off into the future because the system is backlogged, and that's how they stay in the country illegally, indefinitely. That's the playbook. And in order to process these people before they get put on buses and airplanes and sent to the cities of their choice in many cases, which some leftists would call human trafficking if it were Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis doing it, but because it's the Biden administration, they're fine with it. The people who are in far too many cases responsible with this monotonous paperwork and processing are the actual officers who are therefore not at their posts, allowing more gotaways to get away. In fact, they are already at a record-setting pace this fiscal year on gotaways alone. And because the situation is so acute and so dire there, quoting from foxnews.com, the executive director of the Air Marshal National Council has issued a clear message to the Biden administration on Monday warning that air travel is becoming less safe as air marshals are now diverted to the border. They are warm bodies being sent down there to the border to be part of this administrative processing rather than up there in the skies doing the job that they're trained for. And the woman who is in charge of this council said, quote, these ground-based duties that they're pulling us out of the sky to go to the border for are just demolishing our chances of stopping another 9-11. She has raised this concern with the administration, and she says she has not heard back from them. Surprise, surprise. Just failure all the way down on this border crisis, and it's getting worse, and Title 42 is about to fall as well. It's a story we will stick with here on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free every day on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. And this hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, TheLongDrink.com. It's delicious. Check it out. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now here in studio in Washington, D.C. is Byron York. Chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, where he writes the Daily Memo, which is a newsletter that they have. He's also a Fox News contributor. Byron, always good to see you. Good to be here. All right. So you wrote a piece earlier in the week about now this infamous, notorious dinner that happened at Mar-a-Lago over the long weekend involving the former president, Donald Trump, and quite an array of characters. Yes. More and more Republicans are being asked about it. More and more Republicans are blasting the fact that this dinner even happened. I talked a little bit about this yesterday on the show, and just to be radically transparent with the audience, what I'm wrestling with is, on one hand, trying to make very clear that I think these people are vile and it was terrible that Trump met with them, a reflection on him and the people around him just allowing it to happen, and making it crystal clear that I want no part of any of that, while also not feeding into the publicity machine of this group of people who clearly did this to gain publicity and notoriety. And because we're talking about it constantly all over the news, it seems like we're helping them accomplish their own little mission. So it is a difficult line to try to walk. You have written that you think that Trump himself sort of got played in this whole episode. Yes. Just lay it out for us, if you would. Okay. Uh, First of all, this is about – this is a story about money and publicity. And the publicity is about making more money. So it's really all about money. And basically uh, the cast of characters uh, are Kanye West who has uh, appeared uh, lately um, and sort of ran for president in 2020. You know, he had one weird event in South Carolina um, and has a lot of money. And then he sort of kicked off his 2024 presidential campaign with the infamous DEFCON 3 to the Jewish people tweet that he did a, a few weeks ago. And Kanye, uh, and his, just to pause for a second, just this mammoth superstar in world the hip-hop and rap world. Yeah. I mean, he was at maybe the peak of his powers yes. when I was in college and just beyond. With a huge empire, then clothing and shoes. Massive. And I mean, absolutely so, massive. And he's gone down a pretty dark path recently. Absolutely. And, he, and now he seems to just be all about anti-Semitism, his own. Um, so he is, he is in here, and he's making uh, noise. Uh, and he's getting a lot of notoriety. And amazingly enough, uh, a couple of other characters out in the fringe um, of the sort of anti-Semitic alt-right world, uh, a guy named Nick Fuentes, who was only 24 years old uh, and has been kind of a persona non grata for uh, a long time, uh, starting with the Charlottesville rally back in 19 uh, – excuse me, in uh, 2017 – um, and also named uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who 
uh, is a British 38-year-old provocateur, takes all sorts of outrageous uh, positions, and was actually kind of, uh, I wouldn't call him a darling of the right, but was popular in some quarters of the right several years ago, uh, and has disappeared and come back. Um, and, and so and reportedly they were all connected, this trio, by the producer or former producer of Alex Jones, right? who's another nutcase. So the driving force here is Kanye West's fame, notoriety, and money. Uh, he's, he's lost a lot of money since his sort of anti-Semitic anti diatribes, uh, but he's still got a lot. Uh, so th that is the driving force. So these, these people who are essentially provocateurs, uh, grifters, scammers, whatever you want to call them. Scumbags, uh, one might say. Latch on to Kanye West and, and start talking, telling him that he's really got a great vision and that he could do great, great things. Uh, now, Kanye West... Uh, went on a, a, um, a podcast yesterday and said that he had been talking with Trump um, about <laughs> having dinner at Mar-a-Lago. And they actually had to, to postpone it. It was kind of uh, a standing uh, date, and finally they decided to do it. Uh, and basically he has people saying, well, you need, to, you need to talk to Nick Fuentes. You need to talk to Milo Yiannopoulos. And so th these people see in Kanye West – a way to make money and to to get noticed and and all of a sudden and they're like in his entourage now yes, Kanye's right. and his presidential campaign if you want his to call quote, it that presidential campaign so Trump says that he thought simply that Kanye West was coming to dinner this prearranged dinner and then Kanye West shows up with an entourage including those two um and then the the thing is when you sit down with the former president you're having dinner with him um he has given you the imprimatur of having sat down with the former president. And so uh, immediately, immediately, uh, Kanye West posts a video of himself discussing the dinner later in which he, Kanye West, says that he really irritated Trump by suggesting that Trump should be his vice president in, uh, in 2024. And, and just to underscore something that you're saying, they all, this little group, this ragtag group of bigots – immediately sought as much publicity as possible Absolutely. about the fact that they had dinner with Trump. They wanted to suck up some of that oxygen, get a bunch of that attention, see, aha, look what we just did. And we really annoyed Trump because, and the reports are, that the dinner got a little bit heated between Trump and Kanye, not because Trump was confronting him about his anti-Semitism, no. but because Kanye was talking about running for president yes. and Trump viewed him as a threat right. or was – fighting back against this idea that Kanye would be at the top of the ticket. I mean, in some ways, it's all quite sinister. In some ways, it's farcical. But, you know, Trump had said so – what happened so, – so after this, the news comes out, and it was designed to leak. I mean, the whole purpose was to get publicity from it. And For these uh, guys, not really for Trump, but not for them. Not for Trump, not for Trump. Um, so Kanye West posts this video, and he has – how many? 18 million? There's a lot of – or maybe 80 million. I don't know how many Twitter followers he had. It was a ton. Um and then uh, Fuentes it has some sort of live stream, and it's a live stream in which he talks for hours, and people who follow him uh, 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 commit to giving him money, $3, $20. Uh, the largest I saw was $777, literally two hours and 40 minutes of the stuff, which I watched, um, in which basically he's talking about the dinner with Trump and using it to get people to give him money. And he says – 
he comes out and he says how much he admires Donald Trump, the great things Donald Trump has done. He's just a, a wonderful this historic is the young figure. racist that we're talking about. Exactly. And he said, but it's time for new leadership. We need bold, visionary leadership. And guess who that is? It's Kanye West. So who he's working for now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so Trump, by giving them this audience, a, a dinner at Mar-a-Lago, uh, he has allowed them to go out and, and, and come up with all sorts of new promotions to get money and more publicity and hopefully to lead to more money in the future. But it's all being powered by the fact that Kanye West has the money to hire them and to put them on his team and use them to get greater publicity for himself. Kanye just appeared on a podcast, I think it was yesterday, yes, Tim Pool's podcast, right. where he was very lightly and politely challenged yes. on his anti-Semitic rants. And he stormed out of the interview yes. after a very short period of time. He could not withstand any scrutiny, sort of some snowflake-type behavior, and he took his little bigots with him, and they all scurried away. And before we bring this back to Trump, I just want to say one thing. I don't throw the word bigot around lightly. I know a lot of people do, especially on the left. They want to frame any wrong thinking or any errant word as some sort of hateful dog whistle, or they're willing to, I think, over-apply terms like hate and bigotry for their own political purposes. We don't do that here. In the case in particular of this younger, racist, anti-Semitic guy, it's not even a question. It's not ambiguous. It's not equivocal. He's against desegregation, for example. He thinks that black people and white people were better off under segregation. He thinks that biracial couples and marriages are an abomination. You can go down the list, Holocaust denial type stuff. He has said horrifically awful, ugly things now for years. And I think it's sort of tragic that this young life is so polluted the way that it is. But he's this toxic figure. He has found his way into the orbit of Kanye West, also troubled and now sort of in this demented place. And because Kanye has a lot of money and fame, he ends up in the orbit of Donald J. Trump. And here they are breaking bread, having this meal, having some arguments to back and forth. Apparently Trump and this young guy sort of got along well because the young guy was praising Trump effusively, which Trump loves. And then he turned around and went on his live stream afterwards and said, but we're over him now and we've got to go with Kanye West. Sort of a bait and switch situation. The whole thing about Trump getting played I know a lot of the discussion, Byron, now is surrounding our Republicans denouncing this sufficiently. We're seeing more and more of the denunciations roll in. I think it's perfectly fine to denounce. Sometimes the media plays this game. Sometimes it's just easy to say, no, I want nothing to do with that, period, end of story. The question seems to be, did Trump have any idea who these hangers-on were? And is that important? I think to some extent it is, but also... Does Trump have any protective guardrails left around him from anyone he's got a whole – speaking of hangers-on and people getting paid to work for someone famous, he's got people who are charged with at least trying to protect Trump's image and brand, and he's he's actually an announced candidate for president of the United States again. There are clearly some people who are hyper online who must have known who all of these people were, and yet they ended up at this dinner table. I just think it's such an awful reflection of really everyone involved. Those who knew, those who didn't know, the interplay there. I'm just wondering how you feel about that. Well, uh, after this all blows up, Trump starts uh, issuing long statements on Truth Social, his uh, social uh, network. 
And he basically said, you know, Kanye is in trouble. He's a troubled guy. And he called me wanting advice. And then he shows up with these two guys I've never seen before. I have no idea who Nick Fuentes especially is. I just have no idea. Now, there's a debate about how much, whether that's true or not. Did he really not know? Because, I mean, if you follow, if you followed that alt-right world, you would know who he was. He's like a somewhat well-known figure in that little underworld. In that little, in that little underworld. But, but my feeling is, well, let's say he didn't, but he knows who Kanye West is. Right. And he knows what saying. Kanye West has been doing lately, the whole DEFCON 3 stuff. Uh, so uh, he, he knows that, and he does it anyway. Now, w- one thing I thought was just fascinating in, in Trump's explanations um, he talks about how he argued with Kanye West and told him that he shouldn't run for president. He Kanye should not run for president because all his voters need to vote for Trump. Uh, and then he said, we got along great. He, Kanye West, expressed no anti-Semitism, and I appreciated all the nice things he said about me on Tucker Carlson. Why wouldn't I agree to meet? Also, I don't know Nick Fuentes. So the, all the, he said great things about me on TV. The f- flattery works with mm-hmm. Trump. I mean, there's just this extraordinary need for flattery. And what you saw with Fuentes, Fuentes goes in and he flatters Trump, just lays it on thick. And Trump, amazingly enough, says, you're pretty smart. You're a smart guy. So he starts saying things. I like this kid. I like this kid. He starts saying things that they can later use as sort of Trump's seal of approval for themselves. And, he, and, and Fuentes immediately goes. And turns on Trump. And turns on Trump because, because that's who these people are. It's these are not people of good character. Here. No. And these are people, I think it was your phrase, with no reputations left to lose. Exactly. And so they have nothing left to lose right. except to go out and do this stuff, which brings me to my last couple of points on this, Byron. I have been avoiding saying his name, yes. the younger guy in particular, and, and the other hanger-on as well, because all they want is fame. And with fame, they think comes money or whatever. And to see, as I have, especially on our competitors, because I have all the networks on here in the studio, this guy's face all over national television now Mm -hmm. for days, his face, his name, everywhere, they're almost turning him into a household name in order to blow this whole thing up and blow back on Trump. And I'm not saying that Trump doesn't deserve it and all the criticisms aren't deserved. They are deserved. But I'm also very wary about infusing – this sort of sick PR machine with the oxygen that they crave, which is why I'm hesitant to go completely, you know, wall to wall hair on fire about it, even though I think it's a very, very, very bad look. I think to put it even somewhat mildly, that's point number one. Point number two, it is interesting watching these criticisms now coming in including from longtime Trump allies, like his former ambassador to Israel, for example, came out with some pretty tough tweets. The reports are now that Trump is privately raging against this guy who was one of his guys. Rather than taking the lesson or taking the note, there's just none of that self-reflection. It's all just digging in, doubling down, lashing out. And unfortunately, this is just very typical of Trump and the whole model of Trump, especially Trump unconstrained. I find it absolutely exhausting, and I wonder if voters out there, Republican voters, Trump voters, at least a good number of them are at least starting to feel the same way. Look, this was this uh, process of getting a little tired of Trump and the, all the drama and all that, that was going on well before uh, this event took place. Now, Trump has 
helped this to happen, of course, by allowing this dinner with Kanye West, who he knew well who West was. Um, and then the, the next step in the process, which is the call for denunciations. You know, Trump has to denounce uh, these people, and then all Republicans have to denounce Trump for having dinner with these people. Right. This has all come up. And I have to say, I don't think it's that complicated. On, on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd asked James Comer, the Republican representative, it, it was a really simple question. Did President Trump made a, make a mistake doing this? And the answer is, yeah, he did. It was a mistake. It was a bad mistake. He shouldn't come anywhere near these people. A former president of the United States or a candidate or anybody else should not come within a mile of these people. It's not a hard question to answer. Right. Um, and there was a, there was an initial spate of stories that said uh, Republicans remain silent uh, on this dinner. And now they're not remaining silent. Right, it was, it was Thanksgiving. People but, were doing stuff. But it's now just, they're back. It's just an easy question to answer and say, look, no, these are these are bad people. Trump shouldn't have anything to do with them. And you shouldn't either. Yep. And I think that there's a point to be made about them and the grift and the racket that they're running yep. and the bile – that it's just steeped and marinated in. And then there's also the piece of the reflection on Trump and the team around him. And I think I've said my piece. I think the audience gets a sense of where I'm coming from here. And with that, we'll move on because we have to take a break as well. Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Great to see you in person. Thank you. Do it again soon. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the happy hour. Yesterday at the White House, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the president's spokeswoman, had some exciting announcements to talk about. And she kept pronouncing a certain word a certain way. It was sort of strange. Cut 18. Today, President Biden met with three U.S. winners of the 2022 Nobel Prize. Dr. Caroline Bertozzi, who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Dr. John Clauser, who won the Nobel Prize in physics and Dr. Douglas Diamond, who won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. The Nobel Prize. She's been around media and politics for her whole life, it seems. Do you not just know sort of by osmosis, by accident, that it's the Nobel Prize? Did someone not give her that note before she went out there? That's just a weird one to me. Although I can imagine the White House now saying it's always been the Nobel Prize. It always should have been the Nobel Prize. Like they tried to redefine recession, for example. Just reshape reality as they need. They could say, oh, in fact, to say Nobel is a vestige of Jim Crow or something like that. I'm joking, I think. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's Guy Benson Show, we brought in Britt Hume, Chief political analyst here at Fox News. Always enjoy chatting with Britt. Here's part of our conversation about the state of play. Listen, President Biden meeting, as he said he would, with the big four, the Republican and Democratic leaders. This is their first confab of that sort since the election. Sort of an interesting election where Republicans have won the House. They have not regained the Senate. Kind of a status quo election. Better outcome for the Democrats than they, uh, than I think that they were anticipating overall, but still a uh, changing of the gavel and control of that gavel in the lower chamber, at least, upcoming. Uh, they all came out and gave their talking points and that sort of thing. Of course, the Democratic leadership on the House side is going to be changing in the new Congress. 
I'm not anticipating very much happening for the next two years. I, with divided government, that's kind of the point. Also, I think the Republican majority is going to be very dysfunctional in terms of being able to do anything just on their own. Uh, do you think that's about right from your perspective? Yeah, I do, Guy. I think it is about right. The Democratic agenda will be frozen because it'll be extremely difficult for the Democrats to push anything of any moment through the House of Representatives, um, assuming that the, <laughs> the House Republicans can get their act together and actually elect a speaker. Um, <laughs> it appears that Kevin McCarthy, who's the would-be speaker, doesn't yet have the votes, and heaven knows what concessions he'll have to make in order to get the, the remaining votes he needs. But uh, it's just going to be hard for the Democrats to move anything, and hard for the Republicans to move anything either, because they won't be able to get it through the, through the Democratic-controlled Senate, and they certainly won't be able to get anything important passed over a presidential veto or with a presidential veto looming. So that's kind of where we are, and you know I think that's the, that gridlock is likely to be welcomed by a great many people who've had enough of the legislative agenda that they've seen from the Democrats these past two years under Mr. Biden, who promised to be a moderate but has not. Yep, I think that's exactly right. One topic that's kind of looming over the economy right now, you and I both addressed this on special report last night with Brett Bayer, is this potential rail strike that could be really impactful and have a real cause real problems for the US economy should it go forward. There was the specter of this potentially happening before the election and they avoided a strike then. My cynical take was there's no way the union bosses were going to do that to the Democrats right before an election. So they held off. Now it seems like there's an impasse. The president who billed himself as this blue-collar union guy seems to have thrown up his hands. He's not getting heavily involved. He wants Congress to take over the process here. Is this a real threat? What do you make of Biden's leadership or lack thereof? What's happening here? Well, he's thrown up his hands, I guess, in a way. He, you know, he, he, was, he wanted everybody to know that that he and his team had put this this agreement together, this tentative agreement together that averted a strike earlier. Uh, he wanted you know, everybody to think that that was a triumph, and of course now it's come apart because a number of the unions won't sign on to it. So he's basically handed it over to Congress, which can legislate the can legislatively impose that agreement. Um, that looks like it'll go through the House. Uh, because the Democrats have the votes and the discipline to do it, and a lot of Republicans will go along with it, I assume. Labor doesn't like it. And when it gets to the Senate, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think there's a good chance it'll pass. At the, you know, if all else fails, uh, the president could uh, dust off the old Taft-Hartley Act and go to the court and seek an 80-day cooling-off period to avert uh, a looming strike, which would get us past the holidays, perhaps. Uh, and maybe even into the new year, so and, and well into the new year, come to think of it. So we'll see if that happens. We haven't done that. In, we haven't seen that in a long time. It was the Bush administration the last time that was done. That full interview and the entirety of today's show available online, start to finish, totally free, on demand as always. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a musical treat and a tasty treat, we'll explain right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast is free every day when the show is over, which it almost is. Glad to have you here. 
So I saw this tweet over the weekend, and I thought it was kind of cool. I like these types of mashups. And I was shocked, first of all, that the movie Frozen is already nine years old. In honor of the ninth anniversary of its release in 2013, someone put together a compilation because the movie was such a hit and was a global phenomenon. It was dubbed into many different languages. So they had video of the woman or the women in this case playing, I think the character's name is Elsa, the main character, singing the famous song Let It Go in a whole bunch of different languages. And they clipped it all together seamlessly with the music bed underneath and then different languages. And I want to play just part of it because I think it's neat. It starts with Idina Menzel, who is singing in English. She's the voice most associated with this, obviously. Then you'll hear after English, you'll get to French, German, Dutch, Mandarin, Chinese, Swedish, Japanese, Latin American, Spanish, Polish, and Hungarian. The clip keeps going with even more languages, but... Just for the purposes of this program, I wanted to give you a taste of it. This classic song, Cut 19, listen. Snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. Royaume de solitude, ma place est là pour toujours. Der Wind erheut so wie der Sturm ganz tief in me. I believe that last translation is the cold doesn't bother me anyway, roughly translated. And this song for the movie Frozen was written by Robert Lopez and his wife. And I guess I'm told by Dan that Robert Lopez is a two-time EGOT winner, meaning based on his work writing songs, he has won twice over Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, and Tonys which is quite an exclusive club. And I just have to admit, I played this song for you, or at least this compilation for you. I've heard Let It Go many times. It was impossible to avoid. It's catchy. I like it. I've never seen the movie. I don't know the plot. I don't know why Elsa is singing about letting things go. I just have heard the song over and over again. Christine, this is probably, what, roughly the age, the film is roughly the age of your daughter, right? Yes, Megan was born in 2013. So Frozen is ingrained (laughs) in my brain. I could probably sing to you every single song. I, I mean, if I say 100, maybe 200 times I've seen the movie, I wouldn't be exaggerating. At what point did Megan start watching it? Because... By the time she was old enough to really enjoy it, the movie was already probably multiple years old by that point. But this was a movie that was just 
I mean, kids now, I'm sure if parents no, are No, it's a smash hit. Like, I, I yeah. think one of the, it but, has to be uh, one of the biggest kid cartoon smash hits ever. It has to be, right? Oh, I, I, I would say so. I mean, this is what got Megan into, you know, this was her first princess costume. She had to be, she said, Elsha. So she had to be Elsa and Anna. And it's about sisters, by the way. Um, oh. It's a great, great story. And I love that this isn't, the story's not about, you know, a princess being rescued by a man, you know, by a prince. This is about two sisters, um, you know, being torn apart and then coming back together and they're best friends and they're the loves of each other's lives. It, it's just such a great, sweet story and the music is just so amazing. And yeah, everybody should go watch it. You should watch it. I might actually have to go back and watch it. Just now that you're saying all this stuff, I'm not really aware of anything that you just mentioned. And it is enough of a cultural touchstone that I probably should have at least seen it once. And the the song is good. I'm just going to say it. It's a good song. And it's actually originally written. Do you know this? I know we just said it was Robert Lopez, but I'm going to pretend it was originally written by Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, God. Just just something to keep in mind. (laughs) Uh, It's a callback. It's a callback, folks. Wyatt, I am just willing to bet almost every dollar that I have to my name that you have seen Frozen at least once. Yes, I've seen it a few times. I mean, it is a pretty culturally relevant movie. I think I was in middle school at the time. You had to have seen Frozen. I'm kind of surprised you have not seen it because it is just that big of a movie. It's up there. Um, I mean, they even have a ride in Disney of Frozen now, and they're building yep. a Disney Frozen land, like a whole <gasps> section land in, I think, one of the Chinese parks. Christine is so – it's in China, though, Christine, so Oh, careful. no. Don't tell Megan. Just <laughs> slow oh. your roll a little bit there. Dan, have you seen this? Am I the only one who hasn't seen this? I've absolutely seen it. I love it. I've watched it with my niece before. She's obsessed. And just the songwriting alone, I'm a, I'm a songwriter myself. I've been doing it a long time. The music in that movie fits every perfect formula in a song written. That's why you get chills when you hear that chorus come in. It's just like absolutely perfectly written. All the songs are wonderful. Yeah, the chorus for Let It Go is epic. I will give everyone that point and hats off to the Lopez's and everyone involved. It's got to be kind of cool setting aside all the accolades and the awards, to have created something so relevant and so popular that it's been translated through song into virtually every language imaginable where there's like a DVD player anywhere in the country or a streaming service, that's got to be pretty gratifying, I would say. But perhaps not as gratifying, listen to this transition, as a delicious, perfectly cooked steak which is our next topic, and I'm so excited about this, Christine. Our friends at Omaha Steaks back advertising on our podcast, which you can get, as I always say, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. They are sponsoring our podcast for the next couple of weeks, heading into the holiday season and toward Christmas, and they've got a special that I just want to give them a shout-out for here on the broadcast as well. If you go to OmahaSteaks.com, you can cobble together and put together your own package of various meats and sides, desserts. They have an amazing array of options. And then at checkout, when you're getting ready to pay, you plug in my name, G-U-Y, Guy, as the code, and you get $30 off your order. Now, there's a minimum order that may apply, but I think once you get going and selecting, for example, bacon-wrapped fillets and maybe those delicious apple tartlets, I mean, They have some fantastic stuff. I plan on sending at least two of these packages. 
using my own discount code, Guy, at checkout at omahasteaks.com for Christmas this year. My brother's getting one, and I'm debating on who gets the other one. I might do three. I'm still making those calls. But for the next few weeks, you go to omahasteaks.com at checkout, plug in my name, G-U-Y, 30 bucks off at the end after that minimum order that may apply. And I think it is a guaranteed hit. And I just want to say this. My parents were in town early for Thanksgiving. They came in Monday, might have even been Sunday before Thanksgiving. So they were at the house for a number of days leading up to the holiday before other people arrived. And we had some Omaha steaks in the freezer. It was the bacon wrap fillets. We cooked them. We ate them. And there was not a single speck of food left on anyone's plate. We were extremely satisfied. It is delicious meat. And you say, oh, it's frozen meat. Is that? It is extremely high quality. It was sensational, delectable. And I know that I'm sort of the new kid on the block here when it comes to Omaha steaks. I've only tried them more recently. Christine, you have much more of a history with Omaha steaks, is my understanding. Oh, yes. I mean, before Megan was born, and we were just talking about Megan was born in 2013, so maybe the year before, my husband, um, as most women do when they get pregnant, they panic about money. So I did as well and made my (laughs) husband go get a second job. And he wound up working at um, Omaha Steaks. They used to have brick and mortar stores. And... I'm telling you, I'm not sure we actually banked any money because we wound up buying so much Omaha because we fell in love with the product. It is so good. And it's not just the steaks. Everybody said, oh, so yeah. You, so you would take his paychecks from Omaha Steaks and spend the paychecks on Omaha Steak? Yes. I'm talking okay. like we would fill our freezer. I mean, to the top, boxes upon boxes, we would, Bobby would come home with on Sunday nights. And we said, well, you know, at least we're going to eat great. Well, and- you could have used a discount code like Guy at checkout mm. at omahasteaks.com. Just pointing that out through the next couple of weeks up till Christmas, it is going to be a home run or we're past baseball season, a touchdown, a goal, whatever you want to call it. People are going to love Omaha Steaks, and you can be a holiday hero by ordering your package. And it's not like a predetermined package of things that they tell you, here's what you got, and here's the Guy Benson discount. You can figure out and sort of customize what you want, put it in the shopping cart, and when you go to checkout, you plug in my name to get those $30 off that I mentioned. Do you have a favorite, Christine? Okay, we're going to be here a long time. I will try to cut it down. But one of my all-time favorites, as well as Judgy Joyce, um, the coconut shrimp. It's the appetizer. It is so delicious, and they have a sauce that goes with it. Honestly, we bring it to a lot of family gatherings. I'm going to bring it for Christmas Eve this year. Another one we loved, they have these stuffed chicken breast with broccoli and cheese in them, and you just throw them into the oven. Oh, my gosh. They are so good. Like, I'm actually like, I have to go buy them. That's how good they are. And here's another thing. They have, so they have soups as well. And they have a delicious lobster bisque that actually has, like, pieces of lobster in it. So you can use that as a soup. But what Bobby and I do is... We take it and we mix it in with like a good macaroni. Like you need like a good ziti that will soak up the soup a little bit. make it a pasta sauce. Make it a pasta sauce with lobster. It is so, so good. So it could be soup. It could be sauce. And by the way, I just want to say this is not like feigned excitement and enthusiasm Mm -mm. from Christine because Omaha Steaks is a sponsor. 
She is passionate about Omaha Steaks. Dan, <laughs> you were just telling me in my ear, you also are in this boat. Yeah, so I grew up with it. My dad used to order it when I was a kid. So my, I'm pretty sure my first steak I ever had at home was an Omaha Steak. And so we had it forever. I remember getting the boxes at home and seeing the logo on the top and being very excited. And I still, to this day, use them. And I, I grill a lot. I um, have a smoker grill. So I'll use Omaha Steaks on that, and I love it so much. Well, and there's longevity here. I mean, we're not talking about this brand-new phenomenon. It has been a successful business for decades because the product is excellent and it's delicious. I'm a foodie. I admit I'm kind of a little bit of a food snob sometimes. You might have picked that up when we talk about food here. That's why I'm very proud to have Omaha Steaks as a sponsor. Over these next couple weeks on the podcast, let me just remind you one more time, go to omahasteaks.com, enter my name, Guy, and you get 30 bucks off at the end of the order at checkout. Minimum order might apply, and you're not going to regret it. And it actually reminds me, I should make a little note on my phone calendar that I need to get those orders in to make sure that they all arrive in plenty of time for Christmas to the people on my list. And with that, thank you, Omaha Steaks. Thank you, OmahaSteaks.com. Thank you, promo code guy. And on that inspiring and delicious note, we're out of time. Thank you for listening. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.